Now that food from all kinds of cultures are gaining cultural currency, what is the difference between sort of encouraging readers and really kind of like telling, you know, the story behind a certain food or tradition? You know, what is the line between that and sort of being very like conquesty and just sort of like, here's the new thing to go get? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Delia Kai is a journalist, newsletter savant behind the popular Dieseling Send, Vanity Fair staffer, and author of a great debut novel, Central Places. Delia and I cover many cool topics on this conversation, including her Midwestern upbringing, her thoughts on the state of the food internet, that is capital F, capital I, and learning about the customs of dining out the hard way. Man, I love catching up with Delia, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Delia Kai, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. So I'm, happy to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you on to talk about your fiction, to talk about your journalism. But first, uh, and Dee's Links, of course, Dee's Links. How could I forget about that? I've been reading <laughs> you for a long, long-ass time. And... There's a lot to cover, but first things first. Let's talk about Midwest, Midwestern food in particular. We're both from there. Did you know you're from Peoria, outside Peoria? I'm from Mm. Kalamazoo, Michigan. And in the 1990s, we each, each of our cities had an IHL team. Yeah. Yeah, I would go to a Riverman game. Dope. Yeah. What was your team? Kalamazoo K-Wings. Ooh. Previously the Wings, but then they became the K-Wings. Oh, that's so interesting. What do you remember about Rivermen games? I remember I remember not really understanding what was going on, but it was sort of like so actually what's really funny is that um the ice rink where they would play like when there wasn't like a a game, a match, like the Zelda yeah. I know about hockey. <laughs> um but like they had like a very robust um like ice skating lessons program, so I I took lessons there. Oh cool. Um, and so that's sort of what I most remember about the Rivermen was like the Rivermen, the Owen Center, um, and going there for like lessons or, or the ice skating birthday party. I don't know if that was a thing for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I played hockey. Uh, we definitely had like ice skating p- parties and hockey parties. Absolutely. Yeah. That's part of my, my upbringing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you didn't have like a, a rivalry with like the Fort Wayne Comets or anything like that. No. I don't think, I don't think like I followed, I followed it. You know, I just knew like, oh, the Rivermen are why, why this ice rink is here. Yeah. Yeah. You were interviewed by interview and it was, you you said something that I think is really, really cool and smart. You you said that regional Midwestern stories are still a bit lacking. I love that. I love that you think about the Midwest as regional. What did you mean by that exactly? Growing up, I kind of thought the Midwest was sort of like, like, um, like blank. Like, there was just nothing. There was no culture. Like, um, almost in the same way that, like, you can't really describe a Midwestern accent in the same way. It, like, it's just sort of like, oh, it's just really the absence of, mm-hmm. of a, like, an accent in the same way that, like, a Boston accent exists. Um, so I think thinking about the Midwest as, like, actually, like, a regional place with its own, like, history and culture, like, that was just kind of part of my own, I think, like, personal um, development sort of reckoning with like my like with where I came from because I think it took a lot to excavate under those like teenage layers of just like this place is boring Mm -hmm. you know this place is not what you see in the movies or on tv or in books um 
And it was really funny because I remember once I moved to New York and just sort of realized like how um, like you could sort of see all the shows and movies that you grew up watching and how it drew from the city. And I remember sort of putting the two and two together where it was like, oh, like, you know, people make art about kind of like what they know and Mm -hmm. the fact that like all these shows are about living in New York. It's because people were living in New York when they were making them. And so that's why like I'm seeing all of, you know, that's why, you know, as a kid watching TV, I know more about like, Brooklyn mm-hmm. or um, like the Upper East Side, thanks to Gossip Girl or whatever, yeah. than like what I see outside like my own driveway. Yeah. Um, so I think just sort of really understanding how like the region, the regionalism comes into play shaped my understanding of like, oh, I come from like a real place with the real culture, but it's just not part of the mainstream conversation. No, yeah. definitely not. And your yeah. book, I mean, the way you write about a time and place. Uh, modern times in uh, in the Midwest, but also reflection back on your youth um, in a place like Peoria. I totally agree with you. Growing up, I didn't see Kalamazoo anywhere. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it on TV. I, you know, it was, it was mostly mocked, but I wasn't even like reading like, I didn't know Flyover State until like two years after I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what that was. It was the concept, but now I'm like, oh yeah. And, I mean, do you feel like when you're tapping into the Midwest for your your, your work, for your fiction, um, is it interesting to cover, to write about for you? So, like, writing about the Midwest for work was really about mining, like, my own personal memories, um, especially because, like, I wrote—I really wrote the book during the pandemic when I was stuck in New York. Um, so it's kind of meta to be like, oh, I wrote this book about, like, mm. you know, this place— like this remembrance of a place and I wrote it mostly, you know, by not, by not being there. So it was sort of like, oh, I like sort of had that played with, you know, the idea, having the idea of a place um, versus maybe like how it actually is, which is definitely like a, mm-hmm. a bit of a theme in the book. But it's really funny because I think as like a journalist and, you know, like my day job, it's funny to kind of go back and now apply that lens sometimes to like things that I see um, or whatever, um, and it feels like sort of like whatever the reverse of like gaslighting is, where you're like putting the pieces together, and you're like, oh, that's why this rich family, like that owned all this land, has like like a polo farm, or like like a polo like it's uh, like reflection. Yeah, you're like, oh, this makes sense because I think when you're a kid growing up, you're just like, this is just how these are the <laughs> rules handed down yeah. to me, and I'm not gonna question them. And yeah. I think now being the person I am who can kind of understand like, oh, what are the forces sort of Mm. that have shaped this place? Um, That kind of just gives me personally like a lot more appreciation for it, for sure. Very cool. Let's talk about food. What was food like growing up in your household? Did you have traditional cooking or was it more like a, a hybridized Midwestern diet? It was very, food was fraught. I mean, I feel like this is a very common, um, sort of struggle in a lot of, like, first-generation immigrant households. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents are Chinese immigrants. They came to the U.S. for grad school. And I, um, you know, I'm an ABC. I'm an American-born Chinese kid. And I'll, I did not want to eat Chinese food, you know. So it was, like, this battle between, like, me and my parents where I just wanted to eat, like, kid cuisine mm-hmm. and Marie Callender chicken pot pies <laughs> and, like, eat the kind of food that, like, I had at school, you know, and 
they were, and for them, it was just like totally foreign. And so we had these like really hilarious, like hybrid meals where like, um, one of my favorite meals now that I think about is like my dad got a crock pot and was like, okay, like I'm going to figure out the slow cooker thing. And he like really loved making beef stew with the crock pot. Ah, like Brunswick style or more of like a, a beef noodle soup? Oh, I don't even know. Probably like like kind of pot roasty. So it was like a, a Western style yeah. beef stew. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Um, but it's really funny because he would make that, right? But then we would eat it over rice. Yeah. So sort of like this very hybrid, like, all right, like you got your American food, but like you still need to eat it over rice because that's like what we do as a family. Memorable scene in the book. The narrator is picked up by her father at the airport. They head straight to H Mart in Mm -hmm. Chicago outside. And, and, you know, we don't need to play the game. Is the narrator you or vice versa? But I'd like to know, did you have like runs to the Asian grocery store in Chicago or like because I I went to college in Madison Mm -hmm. and I have friends from Beloit and they would always go to Chicago to buy their my my friends Korean American my friend Jason would always go to H Mart there yeah yeah um that's really funny because I was born in Madison oh right on um, but yeah, I mean, shout out to the H Mart in Naperville, yeah. uh, that has been a real fixture, I think <laughs> of my life. Cause anytime we're in Chicago, we have to go there. <laughs> Before H Mart got famous. Yeah, I know. I know. Jeez. I think when, when Michelle Zahner's book yeah. came out, I was sort of like, at first I was like a little nervous cause like, oh man, like she's kind of claiming it, uh, you know, whatever that means. Yeah. But then I was like, wait, I'm so glad this place means so much to other people too. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have, uh. Any favorite, like, meals for celebration growing up, like, that you that you would request? Um, my, so my grandmother was, she's, like, a really great cook. And so she, mm. and she, like, kind of passed a recipe down to my mom on just, like, how to make a roast duck at home. So, like, for Christmas, for, like, New Year's, um, I think any special occasion— we would have like a roast duck, but it's kind of funny because like the challenge of finding a duck in like a central Illinois super Walmart, um, sometimes it's not it's not consistent. So mm. sometimes my, my mom would just be like, they didn't have duck. Like, I don't know mm. what's going on. <laughs> what about like just general Midwestern food traditions, like in terms of like pizza or mamwich or I mean, I'm just naming names here. Right? Yeah. Do you have any favorites there? I think, like, I don't know, Chicago-style pizza I'm a little iffy on. I much prefer New York-style. Um, but I love casserole. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember in college my roommate's mom, like, sent her back to college with something that was called, like, cheeseburger casserole. Interesting. It's the best thing. It, Yo, like, best really? Best thing of my life. Yeah, wow. It's so good. Yeah. like, tuna for me, not not feeling it personally. But, oh, yeah. Uh, warm tuna. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd, I'm not a tuna fan, but I yeah. think any kind of, like, meaty, potato-y nah, thing. Yeah. I love that. Let's talk about your writing routine. I've asked a few authors, like George Saunders and Gary Steingart and, and others about Gene Frazier, about the way that you write. Um, and I want to know how you nourish yourself. How do you stay? Do you have any food or drink or coffee rituals while you're writing? I don't. I'm not a huge snacker probably because I think I think when I'm I write I feel like I just like go into this like fugue state and forget to like get up forget to drink water um so like I like those um like dehydrated 
snap pea snacks. Yeah. Whatever they're called. Har- harvest peas. Yeah, definitely. Those are good. They vaguely look like peas. They, yeah. yeah. Or they, they vaguely look like veg- vegetables, vegetables, right? So <laughs> then you feel really good about eating sure. them. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, but I also just drink a lot of hot tea just like throughout the day, no matter the weather. Yeah. What's your um, tea? What, like what do you, do you have like a routine, ritual? I really like, I, <laughs> I really like to just slice up a lot of ginger and boil it for like 10, 20 minutes. One time I let it boil down too long because I forgot about it. And it was like the most concentrated, yeah. spicy, like goodness. And I was like, wow, I'm going to live to be 100 probably if I keep <laughs> drinking this. Wow. So it's just like a ginger tea. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Ginger water, uh, boil it down. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nice. I know. This is how I know I'm turning into my mother is like, <laughs> I just want to drink like warm drinks all the time. Oh, really? Even in the summer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It keeps you cool. Yeah. Um, I want to know a little bit about the food internet. You are an observer of media. You are an observer of the internet, mm-hmm. online culture. And Dieselinks has covered this for years and, and to great acclaim. Um, I want to get, I rarely get, you know, somebody who's outside the food media world to talk about food media, but I'd love to get your take. Do you have like a sense of food media working right now? Do you feel like it's broken? I think it's interesting that, you know, part of food media is very much about kind of providing the service journalism of like, where to go, how to appreciate, like, what new thing to try. And it's very, like, kind of, um, I mean, media in general is just biased towards, like, what's the next new hot thing that you can get on before everyone else in your social circle does. But I think at the same time, there's something about food media that then sort of turns, um, turns like, eating out or or sort of, like, kind of having a certain kind of language around food into this, like, social signifier yeah cultural Uh, currency right yeah Yeah. and so like the idea of like you know i found out about this place from the infatuation but i have no idea like what the story quote unquote behind the food is or even just like what what i'm eating i'm kind of just here to like say did it you know yeah i mean there's obviously kind of this i think tension between the idea of like okay you know now that food from all kinds of cultures are gaining cultural currency and also just gaining appreciation, what is the difference between sort of, you know, really encouraging readers and really kind of like telling, you know, the story behind a certain food or tradition? Um, you know, what is the line between that and sort of being very like conquesty and just mm-hmm. sort of like, here's the new thing to go get? Um, I sort of see that as being a big tension that I think people aren't sure how to how to navigate because I think media in general there's this <laughs> there's this like struggle with like when you're elevating something you have no idea you have no idea if you're about to like shoot it into the stratosphere like I think I just saw something on Twitter today where someone's like you know raving review of like a I think a chicken shop mm. somewhere I don't even know if it was in New York but like it was you know such a rave review that it has kind of destroyed this chicken shop's yeah. business because they're just like we couldn't Which handle. Which is part of food media's problem or, yeah. or paradox over the years. If you write about a place that doesn't have the capacity, yeah, yeah, and especially working at Vanity Fair, I will say like you are always probably thinking about how your writing is going to have a long term effect on the yeah. subject. Yeah, yeah, I think I think media in general, there's kind of this. Um, unease, like we, like the idea of like the scale of the attention that you can, you know, put on someone or something Mm -hmm. and how unpredictable it is and how even so much of it is largely out of your hands, but in the hands of like TikTok or social media or just like whether 
something you write goes viral or someone else discovers it and, and goes yeah. viral. It's you're sort of like it sort of feels like, I don't know, like magic powers, but you're like, I don't know if I'm gonna like or I don't think magic powers is the right word, but sort of like um I don't know. It's so out of your control. I'm yeah. I'm I'm thinking of almost like like a giant muscly, like giant's arm trying to, you know, like pick something up or like like hit a hammer with like nuance and you really can't. I like the metaphor. I, I buy it. I okay. think it's it's a big <laughs> no, you're you're connecting with me because we think about it. I mean when you have a larger platform like Vanity Fair mm-hmm. or, or even Dee's Links, which is where you write a lot of primarily your your writing appears there. Mm-hmm. Um you have to be aware of that that muscly arm yeah. that might miss a few yeah. times. Um and food media is is no exception. I mean, yeah. it could be celebrity media or whatever. It could be anything, really. Yeah. Um, Attention is tricky, I think. Yeah. We never know as writers what's going to hit yeah. and how it's going to hit. Um, wh- how do you consume food media? Do you have an actual uh, favorite way? Um, I'm tapping into you because you are an observer of online culture. I, I mean it. And you're, you're dope. Your work is great. So I just want to get your take. Um. I mean, I pay a lot of attention to New York Magazine for sure. Yeah. I like the the Year Eight New York frame, um, or I guess like it's it's a it's a mm-hmm. newsletter, of course. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's a newsletter and column. And Tammy Ticklemarian has been the show a couple yeah. times. And they have a new columnist now who yeah. I haven't read as much. So. Yeah, Alex, Alex. Yeah. Yes, it's so good. Yeah. Um, but I think like I also like I my good friend Abigail Koffler has a newsletter called. This needs hot sauce, mm. and it's um, it's pretty much just like like her personal like recommendations, um, what she's been eating. She has grown this really beautiful community, and they do like meetups and happy hours together. Oh, cool! But it's one of those things where it's like I sometimes I'll just like look at that to see like where you know I should like where I should check out for dinner because. There is nothing that beats like a, tr- a like a, re- a recommendation from a trusted friend, and it's mm-hmm. like I know Abigail. She I trust her taste. Um, I think she's very earnest, you know. And so, like as much fun as reading like a sick, you know, restaurant review mm. is, it's sort of like okay, but Abigail and I like have actually like our lives are more similar than I think, you know, me and like Adam Platts. <laughs> so I'm sort of like, well, you know, I she's it's kind of my my go-to person. And yeah. I like the newsletter format because then mm-hmm. it's like I don't have to seek it out. But like, you know, I'm also like pretty basic. And every now and then, if I, especially if I'm stuck in a neighborhood and I have to kill some time or find some food, I'm not above Googling like the infatuation yeah. for green. Yeah, brunch. <laughs> respect for uh, for admitting that. I think the yeah. infatuation gets bagged on so much in media, uh, whatever, in within circles and chat yeah, rooms. Yeah, but like, uh, I mean, I like the infatuation. They they've identified, I think, that need that oh, yeah. like, you're like sometimes you just need to find a spot. It's a great right strategy. Now. I mean, yeah. it's good good to have lists on the internet, and um, gotta get your take on on what how how it could be better. Like how what what could what could food media use right now. Okay, you know, actually, here's one really small actionable thing, but, like, I just more often than not go into a restaurant feeling like an idiot because I don't know which part of the wine menu I'm actually supposed to say out loud or, like, I just don't know. Like, I think there are still some, like, sort of customs to dining out Mm -hmm. that I don't know if I've ever truly learned them. (laughs) I'm like making myself sound like such like a like a Midwest Philistine, but I'm just like, 
join the club, man. Like sometimes I just want to know, like, what impossible. kind of restaurant is this? Can you just tell me, like, yeah, you know, uh, there's going to be a little, a little stool for your purse. It's like that kind of place, you know, or like mm-hmm. here is how to eat oysters without looking really dumb. Like, I think I've just missed a lot of these things that you pick up. You've tapped into something that's, I think, the anxiety of many people dining in big cities where there's a, yeah. a custom that is, or a culture that is, that is silent, that is invisible, right? Yeah. We don't know, we don't know until we walk into the room, like, yeah. what, what it is, like, dress code, there's yeah. all that, like, what to wear. Um, and then, of course, price. Like, what, what am yes. I, what am, why am I paying this much for this, 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 whatever? Why are small plates like that, you yeah. know? <laughs> like, I think, I think there's so much discomfort that can come yeah. from from dining out um and i i i would be curious kind of like what food media can do to just sort of like i don't know if it's like standardizing that or just explaining things but like because the last thing you want to do when you go out for for a meal at a restaurant you've read about is to like feel like an idiot while you're there mm-hmm. um so that's like my like plead for like can someone it. tell me how to order wine? No, and that what to say, man, no idea. It, it definitely is is challenging, especially when they're being creative with the cool fonts yeah. and they're you know they're oversharing or they're undersharing. Yeah, you know wine lists are are tricky things, and I think there's a bit of a performance for the restaurant when they sure. when they print those menus out. Yeah, so that yeah, there is no answer. I mean, maybe we'll get somebody on the show to actually <laughs> walk through how to read yeah. out loud. Yeah. That'd be a great podcast, just like reading wine lists. Oh my god, yeah, read I, the menu and like actually explain it to me. Explain yeah. it, yeah, let's do it. Um, let me ask you about power lunching because mm. Vanity Fair, where you work, yeah, is well regarded as covering New York and LA power circles, like in Hollywood and in media and and finance and and other other forms, but. Mm. Do you get a sense just from, you know, being in the office or just in general through your own work, like where the the power dinners and lunches and breakfasts are happening in New York? Do you have any names that pop in your head <laughs> like right away? Like I heard that was on the Outlook Cal for the group. You know, this is the place that people go to. I have a couple like theories that want to bounce off you, but mm-hmm. let me. let me. What, can you tell me your theories? Oh, you want to start there? Okay, yeah. we can start there. Okay, so. I think ABCV is coming back. Pre-pandemic, it was like definitely the spot for breakfast, power breakfast downtown. Mm. It was across from the wing and it was like in that little Union Square corridor mm. that um, to me was um, very easy to get to Midtown, get to back to Brooklyn if you're working from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you feel about how you feel about ABCV. I mean, I've like, I would say that it's really funny. I think the perception people have about working at Vanity Fair where at least like at least, like, the team and circles I'm on, everyone is super normal and down-to-earth. Totally. So, so I don't know if they're having conversations about, like, <laughs> is ABC back? I don't know if I'm I'm part of that. But I, there are, like, names that I'll hear and I'll be, like, in my head, like, okay, remember this. Yeah. <laughs> because what your role at Vanity Fair, you write a lot of front of book, right? I So I'm on the, the Vanities team that's primarily online. Yeah. Um. So we're just sort of looking at, like— uh, anything to do with, like, culture and celebrity, yeah. but sort of on, like, a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. Um, and then sometimes, like, get to work on print projects, and that's really fun. Yeah, Vanities is, like, obviously one of the main cores of Vanity Fair's success. And, and we had Dana Brown on, and I'll link to in the show notes, talking about a previous regime, much different now. Mm-hmm. Um, I get that it's a little different, and it's not, like, Graydon Carter's Power Lunch account discussing that you know 
Um, let me ask you then about my second theory because it's close to okay. your office. Yeah. The Odeon is cool again. Oh, yeah. I, I That was one of the things I was going to say. It was like, I, th- I think so. It's, I th- it, it was not cool for so long. Why is it cool again all of a sudden? <laughs> um, this is me speaking, obviously. This is my, like, hot takes and letters. I It was referenced on Gossip Girl, like, this past yes. season. Oh, um, interesting. There you yeah. go. So that I'm, I'm, like, trying to think of, like, where I've seen it in the culture. Yeah. So on Gossip Girl, I think they were... Like high school, like I was like, I don't think high schoolers lunch at the Odeon, but okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, those very special high schoolers. Yeah. I mean, I bet some sty kids go to Odeon. Probably. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's pretty close. <laughs> um, I know there there have been a couple of like high profile events there, but yeah. I also just sort of wonder like, the older I get as like <laughs> an almost thirty year old, the more I just appreciate a place where you, where it's like. You can either just make a reservation or it's big enough where you know there's probably not going to be a wait. Yeah. Because these sort of like tiny, hypey places, mm. I like, it makes me feel ancient trying to just figure out like, yeah. are we going to eat? You know? And so I think the Odeon and I think like the Odeon is sort of part of a trend that I sort of see as like all these kind of like old school standby places that have just like mm-hmm. stuck around. And honestly, like in 2023, that's like half the game, right? So like still be here. Yeah. Places that have stuck around and places that just kind of like their names like evoke a reference um, or or a mood and you're just sort of like, oh, yes, like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm, you know, sort of to me, it's almost sort of the equivalent of like, you know, when I'm when I'm in the Midwest or I see like so in the Midwest, like anytime like a new chain opens, if you're like, oh, my God, we got a Chipotle, like yeah. everyone is so excited, right? Because it's sort of just it feels like a moment, but you also sort of know like walking in, it's going to be a very, like, predictable, consistent experience. Mm-hmm. It's going to feel familiar. Or, like, when you're traveling, you're like, oh, my God, there's a Fuddruckers here. Like, oh, yeah. I know exactly what that means. And so I sort of almost, like, want to apply that theory to places like the Odeon or, like, Balthazar or Bevelman's where it's, like, yeah. maybe you haven't actually been there, but through, like, cult, through Gossip Girl or through yeah. reading about it, you know what you're in for. And maybe that ties to my other, like— Qualm where I'm just like I think people like to walk in and and just know what the deal is. Definitely you know? agree, and and I want to go back to your point about the Midwest because I think I got a shout out when Hungry Howie's rolled into my town in like 1996. Oh, what's that? Hungry Howie's is like a regional pizza chain. Oh, really great, ugly mustard yellow like box color um, uh-huh. for the pizza boxes. Um, it was big news. Yeah, man. Yeah, so I right? feel that. I feel that for you. And I agree. And also like the comfort and familiarity of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at our baking. I mean, look at how I many know. things are put into squares, which <laughs> I fucking love, like a lemon square or a peanut butter chocolate square. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are like you... Blondie. Oh, God, Blondie. Blondie, yeah. 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 I feel that speaks to me and, and to your point, which is extremely salient, is we... As Midwesterners, want consistency. We want evenness mm-hmm. with uh, like some of our our cultural consumption, which is, is it be a food or co- or music. Mm-hmm. Look at some of our bands. <laughs> some I know. of the most boring bands. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Even like like Eminem is our rapper. Yeah. And, and like, no no offense. I mean, he had some hits back in the day, but that's a kind of a boring rapper. Sorry, this is not meant to be shade on Eminem. I li- I like some tracks. Um, I digress. I digress. Um. But back to your point about New York power dining, is there any spot that comes to mind that like a name that pops in your head? You're on the Vanity's desk, Vanity Fair, 
I'm like hyping you hard, but I, I feel so much respect for Vanity Fair because you're you really I mean you really cover things like three four months in advance. Like that's the close of the magazine. Is that you guys know what the fuck you're doing? Yeah, um, I mean everyone there like everyone there is so smart yeah. and knows so much about like all topics. Like that's yeah. I think what really throws me off is I'm just like, oh my god, how do you know this random fact about that? That's not even nearly under your like official purview. You just know this, you know? Yeah. yeah. Sign of a good magazine when you yeah. have, when everyone's like smarter than you, you feel like oh man everyone's smart yeah love that okay can I can I admit something that's like super embarrassing let's go I love it so all the dime square discourse over like the past like year whatever two years two man. years two and, and a half even I was really like cynical I was really like okay first of all I think we should call it Wu's Wonton Square yeah. like you know I was just really like really I think um. Cynical, skeptical. I was just yeah. like, okay, it has like it's it's a it's a funny name, you know. It's it's a like good branding, and you know, it's bubbling up as a story for all these different reasons. But like, let me tell you, last summer, like, I had a friend who was just like, hey, can you meet me, like, at you know, clandestino? Like, we'll just sit outside and like have have some wine. And it was like sunset on like a perfect summer day, and everyone was just like out not a drop of humidity in the air. Like, we just sat outside in this plaza and had, like, some, like, fucking natural wine or whatever. <laughs> and it was so pleasant. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I get it. This is really lovely and possibly worth the hype. Oh. <laughs> Respect the the honesty. And th- this thing about New York in the summer, you catch it on the right yeah. night. And, and anywhere can feel like that. Yeah. And they've got the open air there without traffic. Yeah. And they've got a lot of very hot people. Yeah. Um, looking to get frisky. It's it's a scene. Yeah. Um, definitely not my scene, but a scene. And I agree with you on the Wu's wonton take. Yeah. Or yeah. former Mission Chinese yeah. Square. Yeah. R.I.P. Best restaurant down there by a long yeah. shot. That restaurant was super fire. Yeah. Really good. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of like, now I'm like dimes pilled where I'm like, it's pretty nice. <laughs> it's pretty nice. The atmosphere is yeah. great. The food and drinks aren't bad. Like, I get it. Yeah, I get it too. And, and, and I'm not one to bag on a full, you know, neighborhood writ large. I feel that's, that's challenging. Mm-hmm. But that shit was insufferable for a while. That, know, that little magazine they were putting out, Drunken <laughs> Canal. Oh man. But I like that breathless coverage was so annoying. Yeah, yeah. So but I think annoying. We're, it was like, it's so funny to just think of like the frenzy over it and <laughs> and the backlash, and now just sort of, it was it was sort of amazing to witness in all these different yeah. ways. Um, but I was sort of pleased, I think, at the end of the day, to be like, this is a nice experience. Like yeah. this is cool to be here, and you do feel like you're part of something special. And that's all I'll say about it before I'm. Insufferable. <laughs> Insufferable and, and, and pilled, as you said. Yeah. You're, you're dime square pilled. Yeah. Um, you took a solo trip to, to Italy uh, yourself, solo, just oh, you. Oh, yeah. That was like, yeah, that was right before, that was right before the pandemic. I love the idea of um, traveling solo. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I think it's a good time to, to collect your thoughts. It's also a good time just to explore cities in a, in a different way if you're not with a partner or a family mm-hmm. member, et cetera. Uh, what's your tip to, to, to getting, getting the food right in, in Italy? Um, I mean, this is a really specific tip, but someone told me they were like, you need to actually make reservations for dinner. Yeah. Uh, or you're not going to get a spot because uh, it was sort of like 
once you have a reservation, you could stay all night and just like nurse a glass of wine. But other like you can't really just walk in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of like I was like, oh, like so glad you told me because otherwise I would have had a really hard time, I mm-hmm. think, finding a good meal. Um, I mean, I think my other tip is just like order all the things you want and you can take it home or you can not take it home. But I think like the whole point of of traveling solo and dining solo is like you should kind of just like do whatever you want mm-hmm. so if you want like two pastas like yeah do it yeah also like no one is looking at you no one is like thinking about you like i think that took me a I while i love that yeah yeah it's hard it's hard mm-hmm. to, to, to actually get into that mindset mm-hmm. no one gives a shit like, yeah especially in europe they don't care yeah you know especially in europe i mean in, in other parts we're not going to comment on that but yeah. yeah in la i mean everyone gives a shit what everyone is doing in, <laughs> yeah, in a dining yeah. room it's that's all it is is people looking at each other yeah it's yeah. crazy you've had that happen um i think so like i i just got back from la and oh, yeah. was sort of like me too the city is not for me so that's oh. why i'm like yeah i can really see that as you feel LA. that way yeah yeah i went to a a place near all the agencies and um it's a it's so weird uh-huh. walking into like a power lunch place with like the head craning and the weird weirdness. Yeah, and I think there's something too about LA being so spread out that it sort of feels like everything just kind of feels like a little like suburban like target in a way. So you're sort of like, oh, is this fancy? I don't know. It kind of <laughs> looks like it could be reskinned into like a McDonald's next week. You know? I mean, you've watched the Kardashians. Uh, you look at like a the landscape, bit. and it's like, yeah, yeah this looks like a fast food restaurant yeah it's not a very it's like not very romantic i think <laughs> yeah new york has got that over la for sure yeah. there's definitely like sweeping dramatic vistas and scenes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're not begging on la it's a great great city did you go to san Gabriel valley at all for some food no no i i kind of just stayed in in la proper yeah yeah, yeah. cool mm-hmm. so central places your book is here and you're talking about it so what is next for you with central places does this become a tv show does it become something else and are you thinking about continuing in this fiction path um i don't know what's in store for central places next um a lot of people have said like oh you know i've been i've been fan casting in my head and that's always really fun to talk about um i think like any writer who's like oh i don't want it to be a tv show is lying like yeah like call me netflix you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, You'd be great. Obviously, you have great sense of dialogue, and and obviously your character development is is like as good as it gets. I love oh, I love you. your writing. It's and we didn't talk enough about your fiction because I want to talk about food, and we yeah, got yeah. some cool territory. So yeah. and you do a lot of talking about your fiction. So yeah, no, that's okay. Cool. I know I, I like I definitely know I want to write more fiction. Um, it's kind of just what I wanted to do ever since I was a kid. So this was sort of like a really just. An amazing proof of concept yeah. of like, okay, here's how you would do it. And now you could do it again. <laughs> but um, I'm like, I just need to, I think, wind myself down yeah. and just like relax for a few years. Oh my gosh. We have the day job um, too. Like, yeah. let's, not, let's not forget that. Yeah. So I'm yeah. kind of just like, okay, I gotta like, I think I need to like absorb, go back into like absorption mode. And then when that the sponge is full again, like... I know what to do with it. Do you think you're going to set in the Midwest? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. This is a one kind of one, one, one and done when yeah. it came to that story. At least for now, because that, because I don't know, like if I move back, if I had to move back, oh. that would be different, right? But I, I'm sort of very 
I think, engrossed with like whatever is right in front of me. Yeah, um, definitely. As most journalists are. Right. So yeah. unfortunately, I'd probably be another like living in New York <laughs> as a novel. <laughs> I mean, God willing. I mean, it's it's a bottomless well of yeah. of, of of activity, and and that's why back to our original point. Yeah. Why most television growing up in me in the nineties, you a little later. Yeah. All the shows were set here. I know. Now I'm just going to contribute to the problem. I know. It's like we've come full circle. <laughs> like the beginning of the conversation, you're like, yeah, like we're going to get more regional. With, I know. You know Midwest. And now you're like, I'm going to stay here and write a book. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a hypocrite. Respect. No, 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 yeah. no. I'm kidding. It, it's it's definitely, you've got a cool point of view in New York. So I hope to read it soon. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Delia, we asked all guests on Taste Podcast to create a food culture or cookbook without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline. Or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to complete this book, what would it be? Two two ideas come to mind. One is kind of practical where it's like, I just want like a cookbook that will tell me like, okay, you live alone, you have no time, you like want to eat vegetables, but like don't know that much about cooking vegetables. Like here, just like here's how to make meals that you can put in the fridge for a few days, yeah. but also that you can like change up so you're not eating the same thing like every single night for five days i just want like a you're like you know i just want like a you're living alone and want to be healthy and not eat takeout every night like yo it's really smart it's (laughs) because the the dining for one or solo cookbooks don't typically focus on health yeah right it's just sort of like here's something quick and easy but it's like yeah microwave or whatever i need i need like i need some lettuce um yeah no doubt (laughs) but the other one is like i i just i love noodles like i would love some kind of i would love to make a cookbook that's like maybe like fusing italian and japanese noodle culture yeah I just, like, like, I think you could make a really fantastic, like, cacio e pepe with udon noodles, mm-hmm. but it just hasn't, like, occurred to me to try it myself yet, so I'm just waiting for someone else to do it first. Yeah, right on. No, there's some yeah. spots that do that, and it's a great call. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Oh, right. Delia Kai, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. Sylvie Bigar, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about Cassoulet and also your career in in food, media and writing and editing. I love your book. Thank you. It's such a great, you can hold in the hand, it has a beautiful cover and it really, uh, we'll get into the story um, of how Cassoulet became more than just a dish. But from the jump, it's Cassoulet season. What is Cassoulet exactly? So cassoulet is a stew. Cassoulet is a basic French stew uh, of beans and meats. And there are many recipes, but some people think there are only three recipes. And some (laughs) people think there's only one recipe. And because it's a French dish, everybody's fighting over it. Yeah, and it's it's like chili, right? And in the states, like there's the recipes that you're debating. But in in France, um, especially in the winter months, there's a real connection also to the wine regions, too, because wine is a component. How are you making cassoulet yourself? Well, I have devised my own recipe in the book. At the end of the memoir, there's yeah. five or six recipes. Um, and uh, we've created my recipe tester, Marion Sultan, and I, mm. uh, a recipe called Sylvie's Cassoulet. And I have to tell you, it takes two to three days. Yeah. However... 
so that people don't, you know, get scared, we've also created a recipe called Gateway Cassoulet. <laughs> nice. And some, uh, some readers have tried that, and I think they're happy with it. You can start in the morning, and you can have cassoulet at night. What's the flavor profile then? I mean, is it like baked beans in America? Is it that sweet or is it, yeah, you're shaking your head, which I, I'm, I'm happy you said that because uh, is it like spicy? What's what's going on here? So it's really neither sweet nor, nor spicy. Yeah. I would say that it's grassy. Um, wow. It's Love beans that. and herbs and vegetables and caramelized meat. And the... Um, the result is uh, an aroma that is very distinctive. Actually, I was just in D.C. for an event, and uh, the bookstore's owner had made cassoulet. And you open the shop, and the smell was just unbelievable. The one thing I will insist on, if possible, is fresh herbs. Yes. Because I think people um, sometimes think that Dry herbs is the same thing, and it's really not. What's the bookstore? This sounds amazing. The book bookstore owner made your dish? Yes. What's yes, the book? she did. Sure. The bookstore is called Bold Fork Books. Nice. And it's in Mount Pleasant, uh, Washington, D.C., and it's a new store, and it's fabulous. I need to look them up. That's that like a sign of a great shop that is actually making cassoulet for a cassoulet event. Yes, and the owner's name is Clementine. Okay, I need to look up Clementine. <laughs> Bold Fork Books. I'm going to check that out. Okay, you you use, the, you use the word memoir, which I love, because this isn't a cookbook. This is a story about Cassoulet. Um, let's get into it, because you, as you write in the book, you were assigned a story for food arts to cover Cassoulet in, in situ in, in the country of in France. It wasn't what you what it turned out to be right there was there was a real surprise what, what was that surprise so i thought i would just you know hop into a plane and fly to paris and switch to toulouse and then i prepared my trip needed to take a train from toulouse to carcassonne yeah. and i would you know eat some beans and maybe uh, grab some cassoulet on the chef's counter on a stool i worked in kitchen before and mm-hmm. i knew that uh, nobody would actually take the time to, you know, uh, have a table ready for me. And I thought I'd, you know, come home and maybe write the draft of the story in the plane and move on. Yeah. In fact, what I discovered there changed my life. Wow. Okay. You're a food writer. You're a travel writer. I love that you were, I want to like leave it hanging a little bit what you found out because I love, I love like, we're going to, we're going to get to the, what you found out, but Let's talk about your history a little bit. You, you, you've written for everyone. You've been in the business for a minute. And um, let's talk about the book work you did with Daniel Ballou. You wrote a book cookbook with Daniel. You wrote the Daniel cookbook with him. What yes. the heck was that like? Yes, it was an amazing project. It was two and a half years um, of working with Daniel, trying to get in his mind hmm. um, and trying to get from him some of not only the recipes, but the stories that he hadn't told before. And I'm very lucky that I grew up in Switzerland. French is my first language. And so I was able to communicate with him in French and then write in English. I think that as far as the essays in the book, um, perhaps that's that's why they are, in fact, uh, private to him and and uh, profound. Did you visit Leon, obviously, and you got into his childhood and yes, and I his did upbringing. I mean, that that guy is complicated. It's a complicated mind that you were cracking, and and I'm sure you you found out some things that maybe weren't ready for print. 
Yes, absolutely. And in fact, my grandmother was born in Lyon yeah. as well. So we have a lot in common. And I think that Daniel, even though he's become the you know, star chef that we know and love, um, he really comes from very simple, um, modest uh, family. And what he loves, I think I can say that, what he loves most are the dishes from his terroir, mm-hmm. um, his, you know, the things that actually his grandmother made at home. What were some of those dishes that you developed with him? And, and what's that process working with, with Daniel? I mean, is there one dish that you can point to that you felt like you really worked on for a while? So the one dish uh, that a lot of people know, actually, and other people like Dory Greenspan um, have also developed similar dishes, is a pumpkin you know, that is carved and then um, Mm -hmm. mixed with bread and cheese and then with the meat of the pumpkin back in the oven. And you take this out and you put it in the table. And it's just like cassoulet. It's the one pot dish that immediately uh, brings people into the table, into sharing, into, you know, conviviality and Personally, those are my favorite dishes of the French repertoire, let's face it. Let's face it. I mean, um, you know, uh, French Nouvelle from like the 70s is fine, right? It's fine, like these movements, but it's the classics that we we like the most, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's the Boeuf Bourguignon. Yeah. It's the Choucroute, um, you know, in Alsace. It's the Blanquette de Vaux, the Ville Blanquette that is hard to find here. I don't know actually where to send people. And the truth is sometimes people say, where's the best cassoulet in this city and that city? I don't always know what to say. It, it reminds me um, of, of finding cassoulet in New York. Did you ever go to P- uh, Peter Hoffman's um, cassoulet festivals at Savoy? Yes, absolutely. I remember that. Those those were amazing. Those were back in like the early 2000s when he would shut down Savoy, this, this legendary restaurant in Soho. Um, which I think now is like basically like a sweet green or something. It's sad because you walk by that space, iconic location and you would shut it down for a Sunday afternoon and have like Wiley Dufresne, um, and a bunch of other great chefs cook cassoulet. I remember Ryan Tate was the chef there at the time. It was such a cool thing to see cassoulet, um, articulated, right? Um, in so many different ways. Why aren't we seeing it in New York now? So, in fact, um, Ariane Daguin did something similar, the Cassoulet yeah. Wars, uh, a few years ago. And I'm very much hoping that we will see this in 2023. Um, you know, her company, D'Artagnan, has yep. been sold. So I'm not sure. But uh, that was another great event. Yeah, um, it's a great it's a great communal event to like have a little spoon of cassoulets all from all around the the, the world. Really, there were there were global versions. Um, back to your grandmother living in Lyon. What was her life like? What was what was life like growing up in Lyon? What's the what's the time frame? I, I'd love to to give our listeners a sense of what French cuisine was like then. And and you know, there's a Jewish. Your grandmother is Jewish, so like there's there's that whole element which leads to kind of the continuation of our story. Yes. So my my paternal grandmother Madeleine. Uh, was born in Lyon. And what I know is that her family was, um, we would say today, a foodie family. They were into food. um, And they were from a a relatively modest uh, background. But when she married my grandfather, 
um, I know that with with him and with my dad, they would travel uh, miles and miles for a good meal. But my other grandmother, my maternal grandmother, um, Blanche, actually, uh, was born in La Chaux-de-Fonds, which is in the Jura Mountains mm-hmm. of, of French, France and Switzerland. But her family was from Alsace. And she was a cook. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've actually uh, uh, brought with me her notebook, her very, very old notebook, uh, probably from the 50s. Actually, the notebook is falling apart. But it describes all kinds of very strange recipe, mm-hmm. Alsatian Jewish recipes. Yeah. Um, and Joan Nathan has a few similar recipes in her books. Um, but this is something that I need to uh, dig into yeah. at some point when I have a little more time. I, I think it would be a great Great, great idea. So let's continue the story. You're you're in Carcassonne. I love saying that word, Carcassonne. I, I learned about it in, in high school. I remember just loving that word and loving the art that came from Car- Carcassonne. Beautiful. There's Cezanne. Somebody painted Carcassonne in such a cool way. Um, but what did you find out when you were in Carcassonne on this assignment for food arts? It's definitely not just how to make cassoulet. So, in fact, I found out that the table was was prepared for 25 people. And that everybody but me was wearing a red robe and and a red beret. Mm. And as soon as the uh, kitchen doors opened, there was sort of a parade that came into the dining room. And people were singing in a language (laughs) that I'd never heard. And it wasn't Spanish and it wasn't Italian and it wasn't French. And I would later find out that it was Occitan, the ancient language of that region. And there were um, two humongous cassoles, clay cassoles, mm-hmm. um, on a tr- stretcher covered with red and gold fabric. And I was just pinching myself. <laughs> I was thinking, where am I? And then they put these cassoles in the middle of the table, and I tasted this cassoulet, and then I was transported back home. And mm. that did not make any sense. The connection between your Jewish upbringing and cassoulet, which never really was written about as a Jewish dish. So let's let's dig into that a little bit. What what was the taste of home that you were actually experiencing there? What 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 was the dish that was familiar? So in fact, um, I don't want to give away the whole story. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but it was more than the taste, and it took me you know, 10 years to write these 154 pages. So it wasn't immediate. But all I knew was that this dish in my mouth transported me back home. And obviously, this is not ratatouille. I'm not a food critic. I'm not being transported back to the kitchen of my mom because my mom never cooked. In the uh, home where I grew up as a child, the cook cooked. Well... I'll miss a call the spoiler here, and you can you can definitely stop and, and read the book. But I, I do want to ask you about a dish that you write about that I know familiar as well. My, my Jewish family has talked about it in the past as well, which is kolant or cholant. You can call it many different things throughout Hungary. I've had it in Hungary before, in Budapest. Um, I've had it in New York. But there is a similarity that's undeniable that 
I had never made as a, I'd never thought about the two in the same breath, but you clearly made this connection in your book. I made the connection and I'm, I'm not the only one. Sure. Um, I have to say, you know, Joan Nathan made the connection um, and other uh, Jewish food writers made the connection before. Um, but uh, let's let's let the readers discover the, yep. the route that goes from cassoulet to Cholent. Love that, and we'll leave it at that because I, I, it's worth digging into the book to to kind of you 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 skip time, right? You're skipping, bef- you know, back into your grandmother's era, and you're you're. It's a cool concept, and the book's it's a quick read, so I highly recommend it. Let's talk about Jewish food in general. Um, you know, we've had a lot of Jewish authors on the show, and. I just want to ask you, is there a layer of Jewish cuisine in the world that you think could be or uh, could be peeled back or, or discovered that maybe we're, we're missing? So I want to say that um, I grew up in Switzerland and, um, you know, I just went to see the exhibit at uh, the Historical Society, the exhibit about the Jewish deli. Delis, yeah. And it's a wonderful exhibit. And uh, people have to realize when I came to the U.S. when I was 19, I'd never tasted any of these dishes. So I think there is a Jewish-American yeah. cuisine, just like there is an Italian-American cuisine, of course, and many others. Um, but what I think is underdeveloped is what I am going to find in these pages of this notebook I'm staring at right <laughs> now, this old, faded, sort of uh, crinkled paper uh, the Alsatian cuisine of the Jews. I'm very interested mm-hmm. in that. And, uh, I mean, it's wild. There's a lot of offal. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, liver. There's a lot of kidneys. Yeah. Um, there's goose. Yeah, of course, which and, is a common component for Cholent. Exactly. Goose. And there's a lot of fat. Yep, yep. Uh, your This is your grandmother was writing in the 50s, this this notebook? Yes, I'm I'm thinking in the 50s, yes, yeah. after the war because yeah. they they fled Paris um you know after 1942 they my mother and my grandmother barely escaped the roundup of the Valdive yeah. on July 16, 1942. Yeah. And they were able to get into Switzerland. Um, so this is this is post-war for sure. Yeah. So this is when Alsace was actually part. Uh, it was not part of France. It was. It was part of France at this time. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was part of Germany during World War One. Oh right. And it yeah, it's hard to keep it up. My I mean, my my World War One Germany um, annexation and geography is bad. So I've learned. Americans. I've learned so much about all of this writing this book, but yeah. also writing um, my next book Ooh. because it's uh, it's based uh, between 1918 and 1944. But that's another story. Well, yeah, we'll have to get into that um, at the end. But um, did you watch A French Village? Do you know about this miniseries? So I know about the series, and uh, like many people in my um, in in my case, I have PTSD about yeah. the Holocaust, yes. and so I have not watched this. Yeah, but I'm, I hear it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, absolutely understand that why you would not want to watch it, and it, it's um, it's a French uh, production. I believe they filmed it in like the 2010s. Um, it's like eight or nine ep- seasons. It's it's incredible. It, it's worth uh, if you if you're interested in in uh, wartime 
history of France from the French point of view, which Americans don't really get. You know, we get the American point of view, we get the German point of view, but we typically don't get the French point of view. Um, worth checking out. Absolutely, I should, and I will. Yeah, well, you don't have to. <laughs> no, I have to yeah. um, because of this other story I'm working on. So, yes. Okay, well, we'll get to that. Now, I wanted to ask you, you grew up in Switzerland, and um, I have to ask, like, I don't, I've, I've never been to Switzerland. I've wanted to go, but what is Swiss cuisine? Like, how do you define it? So, Swiss cuisine um, exists, and uh, people are familiar with cheese fondue. Now, of course, if you ask a French person from the Savoie region, they're going to tell you, but it's French. Um, (laughs) And people are also familiar with the raclette uh, made with typical Swiss raclette cheese. But you can also find French raclette. Um, But I will tell you there is a national cuisine and there is a regional cuisine. Yeah. Because even, you know, um, in in the different cantons, the states of Switzerland – there are many different specialties. This kind of sausage, this kind of cake, this kind of pie. I mean, definitely it's mm-hmm. uh yeah, that's also a repertoire that really hasn't been uh, studied much. No, definitely not. And and it's got to be a great place to visit. I mean, are we are, are, you're you're heading there tonight. I am as actually. we're recording. Yes, I'm actually going to see my mother who is 97 years old and still lives in the house where I was born. Amazing. So uh, what's that trip like? How do you get there? Um, It's pretty simple. It's just, you know, JFK to Geneva. But it wasn't always simple, and it wasn't simple during COVID um, because a lot of flights were canceled. Everybody knows that. So I uh, during COVID, I still wanted to see her, and I flew to Zurich and then took the train, Mm -hmm. Zurich to Geneva. So it's easier than going to Carcassonne. I will yeah. tell you that. Carcassonne, yeah, it's a bit of a boondoggle. You got to take the TGV, right? O- yes. Up in there. Now, uh, when you're when you're, you know, visiting your mother, um, what's the food situation like? What do you What are you guys gonna Are you gonna cook together? Are you um, what, What's the plan? So we used to a little bit, but my mother is uh, unfortunately bedridden. Yeah. Um. So so she cannot cook, um. And it's a very interesting story, my mother and food, because. Um, she was anorexic her whole life, oh. and I talk about it in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that for an anorexic woman to somehow give birth to someone who becomes a food writer, I mean, that's room for thought, right? Yeah, yeah. There's 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 po- poetry there. There's um, overcoming adversity there. There's there's co- complicated conversations I'm sure you had with her about yes, food. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think that she wishes that she could have loved food. Mm. Um, but uh, she was pretty traumatized yeah. from the war. And I think that's one of the results. Absolutely. Um, I hope you get to write more about that topic. It's definitely something that we don't talk about a lot, uh, eating disorders um, within families and generationally eating disorders. It's a lot to talk, lot to think about. Thank you. Yes, I think I agree. Transitioning, let's talk about, I'd like to hear about New York City restaurants. I think we have had a lot of thoughts on our show about French food in New York. I think Tamlin Tikamarian was on the show and and said, like, she never wants to see another steak freed again. There's too much of that happening in New York, and I agree with her fully. There's just a lot of this, this like, throwing steak and fries at people's faces. And there's, But there's, there's also some interesting things happening. I'd like to get your take, someone who studies and writes about food, 
What's happening in New York with the French cuisine right now? So I have to talk to you about two different places. Sure. One is in the present and one is in the past. Love this. Thank you. And the present is Coloman because I have um, discovered just like I think everybody who's been there, an amazing um, combination of French technique applied to Austrian cuisine. Mm -hmm. And Austrian cuisine, just like the chef Marcus Glocker says, um, is known. Um, maybe it's not as known as he thinks it is, but it's it's known somewhat, but considered heavy. Yeah. And in fact, what he's uh, created at Coloman um, in, in the old nomad um, yep. hotel. He has created a kind of menu that no one else has. And that's really what I'm looking for in general when I want to write about a, a restaurant or a chef. I would like to find someone who does something unique. And it's actually very hard. Yeah. And it's the same thing with French bistro, right? Just like you were saying, too many steak frites, too many... You know, the same thing over and yeah. over again. Tar too much tartare. Like, let's let's move on. Let's, yeah, let's... onion soup and yeah. all of that. But when I think back to French food, what comes to my mind is Florent. Oh, gosh, please. Let's go there. So, Love this. So uh, when I first came to New York in the 80s, um, Florent was an amazing place. It was in the meatpacking district before the meatpacking district was Disneyland. It was a real um, butcher uh, yeah. area where people uh, came at night not only to buy meat, but all kinds of meat. They were, you know. They were selling meat in different ways and they were buying drugs. And, uh, you know, where there's now like a restoration hardware, there was like a lot of crazy things happening in the 80s. And Florent persevered. It stayed. He did. It was a restaurant. He did. And he was the son of a very famous pr uh, French painter. His last name is Morlaix, Florent Morlaix. And so I believe that maybe he didn't really uh, need to make money so much. Uh, he was, and I don't know that for yeah. sure, but his restaurant was his life. Yeah, It was where he um, welcomed his friends uh, from all walks of life and the food that he served was French. It was authentic. Mm -hmm. And what, what stays with me is his boudin. Oh, wow. Because he made uh, boudin noir mm -hmm. uh, served with apple um, puree. And it was just amazing. And again, it's those sort of basic dishes from the terroir. Yeah. I'm sure Daniel went to Florent himself. For sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure a lot of those guys. Um, did you ever find out what happened to Florent Morlaix? So I heard a few years ago that there was talk that it would reopen. Oh, my gosh. Um, it was on Horatio Street. I yeah. don't know if you remember that. Um, but uh, I heard it was reopening and then it never did. And I don't. And then yeah. COVID happened. Yep, yep, yep. What about the actual guy? Like, I, I heard he, like, moved to Key West. or uh, that, That's, like, on the... Back of my head, I, I feel like he moved somewhere warm. Yes, well, um, you know, I would understand that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, listen, this story is just sitting there. You got to write about him. You got to find him. You're a journalist. You, this is you got to do it. I'm just encouraging you. Is that a challenge? Maybe for taste. Okay, let's I'd talk. Love that. Let's talk off mic. Um, a few more things. Okay, Tour de France. 
do you do you have any connection to this to this bicycle race? Do you do you ever watch it on television? Do you ever uh, have you ever seen the bike the bike bikes go through your town? Um, no, it's something that I I have sort of heard about. It was yeah. always in the background. I know when it happens in July. Um, you can see. The televisions are on all over France. You can see those cafes and all these people there cheering. Yeah. Uh, but I don't have a personal okay. connection. I, I had to take a little little shot there because I, I love it so much. I, I'm a, such a I'm a, like a, I'm a hardcore fan, um, at least as a television viewer, because I think what it does is it uh, it offers um, viewers a look inside these regions of France that like the Jura gets beautiful aerial coverage and there's always like vignettes within the broadcast yes. about what's happening in these regions and it's just a great reminder about France is not Paris. No, it's not Paris and it's not Provence. It's not Provence either, right, right, it's right. It's really not Provence. Provence, right. I'm sorry to say, has become a little bit of a Disneyland as well. And the story where my book Castle Confessions takes place is the southwest yeah. of France and it's along the Canal du Midi from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic. A lot of people don't know this area, um, and I think it's as beautiful, if oh. not more beautiful, than Provence. Yeah, what about Bordeaux? Yes, Bordeaux is a very interesting yeah. city, definitely. Um, there are, in fact, so many places that travelers uh, can explore. I recently wrote for the Washington Post about the city of Narbonne, and the city of Narbonne on the Mediterranean, sort of towards um, Spain near Perpignan, is mm. not well known at all either. And there's a whole um, vineyard around yeah. the city of Narbonne, you know, the Minervois region yeah. um, and those Languedoc wines. I mean, all of these regions are worth exploring. Absolutely. I think getting up to Champagne, too, is pretty much essential. I feel like that region near Dijon, Dijon, right? Yes, yeah. a little north of Dijon. A little north yeah. of Dijon is, is cool. Um, what a fascinating place. I'm such a rank of file. It is an obvious. <laughs> Love it. Okay, what can you tell us about this book that you're working on? Because I, I feel like you've teased it, you brought it up, not to spoil the show, but what are you working on right now? So I'm actually working on a novel, wonderful, which is completely different from anything I've done. I've had to go into fiction because the story is based on the true story of my uh, late uncle, my mother's older brother, who was born in Sao Paulo in 1918 and died in the Vercors region of, uh, above Grenoble mm -hmm. in 1944 at age 26. Uh, the last time she saw him, she was 17. So um, I grew up with this black and white portrait of, of him on her nightstand. But she had created, of course, a, an ideal uh, hero persona. And uh, there was really not enough to do anything but fiction. And uh, I tried at the beginning to stay within the the frame of what this young men's life was. And it was completely boring. No because, way. Because in fact, the way my mother thinks of her older brother, he was ideal. He was perfect. He was a great student. He was a great, um, you know, polytechnician. He yeah. went into Polytechnique, the MIT of France. And uh, of course, he was a hero. Of course, he had to be a hero. Yeah. Um, so that made for a really boring story. So <laughs> I went all the way. Um, and I'm uh, maybe a third 
along. Um, so you're complicating his journey. Was he? Did he fight for the resistance? Was he a he resistance did. fighter? I yes, imagine? he was. He he was very much so. Yeah. Um, and he died fighting. Yes, he died fighting. Yes. Yeah. Well, the idea that you're taking a family history and, and rewriting it is a fascinating approach, and I can't wait to read it. It's it sounds like um, a bit of a it's cathartic to to be able to write about your family, but also write it, it contextualize it as fiction. It is cathartic. It's sort of magical. Um, And, you know, a lot of writers, you know, talk about this. Uh, Liz Gilbert talks about the muse and, you know, what happens. I look at it more as when I can get in my bubble. And for me, I have to be listening to music and something happens and somehow this character that I've created comes to life. I love this. I can't wait. Sylvia, we asked all guests in the Taste podcast, if you create a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, what would that book be? So I'm going to tell you exactly what it is because there is such a book that I really wanted to write, but it hasn't happened yet. And it's a book about chefs' grandmothers. Mm, mm. So we, we've seen books about the nonnas, right, in Italy. And, and that's lovely. And we all have seen these fabulous videos um, of the Italian grandmothers making pasta. But in fact, I have to tell you that every single chef that I've spoken to has stories to tell about their grandmother. And my idea would be to take people from many different cultures and sort of bring back the grandmother's recipe and also uh, create a contemporary recipe next to it and sort of bring the reader into what those kitchens were from around the world. Love that. I think that's such an ambitious project, and I'm sure. but I'm sure you'd have chefs lining up to work with you on it, too. So I guess there's a lot of stories, a lot of great stories there. There are many, many stories. Can't wait. Sylvie Bagar, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.